And I've titled the sermon today, A Promise Kept. A Promise Kept. So if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 15. So go ahead and turn there with me for just a moment. And I'm going to just give us a little bit of a background kind of to where we are now as we've been going through this book verse by verse. We know that Galatians is one of the first books, if not the first book, that Paul wrote, uh, the first uh, letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. The reason for writing this letter was because of the false doctrine that had infiltrated these churches, and there were people uh, known as Judaizers who were teaching that in order for someone to be saved, in order for someone to be truly saved and go to heaven when they die, they had to obey Old Testament rituals and observances. Uh, One in particular that they were really... Uh, pushing very hard was uh, circumcision. And what would have been difficult then is that as Gentiles came into the church and accepted Christ as well, Gentiles culturally and traditionally did not get circumcised. So they were telling these, this to, to men, grown men who were trying to come into the church, and you could see that it would be a very confusing, crazy time. You know, nobody wants to be told to do that, amen? You can say amen right there. Okay. <laughs> Y'all are acting really awkward as I'm talking about circumcision, so I was just making sure you're, you're with me, okay? So it's, it's something that happens all the time. It's natural, so it's okay. But anyway, so, so there was a lot of issues with that because essentially they were teaching another gospel. They were teaching a gospel that taught that your salvation is based on what you do, on your own goodness and your own good works. And the Bible definitively says that for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that our righteousness even is as filthy rags. Um, the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. So, so when you think about that doctrine of Scripture, and then you realize what was being taught in this church, you realize they were in opposition to each other, and that it was a false doctrine, and that it was essentially teaching a different gospel. And this is what upset Paul so much. Because as we talked about before, Paul was the one who would have planted these churches on, I believe it was his second missionary journey. So he had a personal uh, vested interest in these people. He loved them and cared for them, and it broke his heart that they were being taught this false doctrine. So as we go through here, we're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 15. So if you will, this will be the last time I ask you to stand until the end. Go ahead and stand to your feet for, to honor the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 15. You're welcome to read along with me if you would like. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Let's pray. God, we just entrust this time into your hands. As your word is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword, we pray that you certainly would cut to the very dividing asunder of soul and spirit in our hearts. God, if there's anything in our life, Lord, that shouldn't be there, I pray today would be the day that we confess it and forsake it. God, I pray if there's anyone hurting this morning, that today they might be encouraged. Any sick, God, that you might heal them and give them the strength to go through their difficult time. And Lord, ultimately, we just want to be glorifying uh, to you, and we want to learn more about you and grow closer to you. So God, we entrust this into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you guys are taking notes, the first thing that I want us to look at is the significance of a covenant or the significance of an agreement. 
Here in the CSB, it refers to it as a human will. So we know that that is in reference to when one of our loved ones pass away. It is uh, good um, to have a will that really dictates who receives your estate when you go on. But here also we can look at that as any type of a written agreement. And even in our society today in the United States, we could not operate if it were not for written agreements. You could not own land, and that land be securely yours if it were not for written agreements. Um, in the first service, we had a couple of real estate agents. Do we have any real estate agents in this service? Anybody? No, okay, they must all come to the first service. They got, they got houses to sell. They got to get back out there, right? <laughs> but anyways, we were talking about the fact that real estate agents, basically the central premise of their job is writing contracts and getting people to sign contracts. The reason that there's a guarantee that your land is your land or your home is your home if you own a land or, ho land or a home is because there has been a contract that has been signed and it has been recorded at the Register of Deeds. You know, I found it very interesting that whenever someone closes on a house, the attorney literally, the moment the close happens, gets up and goes to the Register of Deeds and records that because it, it, in reality... It's not valid until the Register of Deeds has it recorded in their system. But that guarantees the ownership. That guarantees that the property is ours, and that guarantees that no one else can take it from you. So no one who is more powerful than you, no one that has more money than you, no one that um, you know, just decides they're bigger and stronger than you and wants your property can take it. You are protected because of that covenant and because of those agreements. You know, if you think about a home mortgage, that deed of trust, that agreement that you make between you and the bank, you know, essentially that's an agreement that says, I'm going to pay this mortgage in full, whether it be 15 or 30 years or whatever it may be. And the thing is, is if you get 15 years into that mortgage and you decide, you know what, I've paid enough on this house, I'm not paying anymore. And I'm going to go in there with a little pencil or a little crayon, and I'm going to change the, the number of years from 30 to 15 because I've paid my dues. Guess what's going to happen? You break that covenant, more than likely, there's going to be some authorities and officials come that are going to kick you out of your house eventually because that house is no longer going to be yours. We don't get to change covenants and agreements midstream just because we feel like it. So what Paul is saying here in verse 15, if you'll go back and listen to that, he's saying, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. So he's using an illustration to try to convey a, a spiritual truth. He's saying no one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. In other words, even among humanity, even among society, not even uh, considering the spiritual realm at this point, even human agreements and contracts are not broken. Even it's not allowed that you go in and you change a contract halfway through. He's saying so if that's the case with human contracts and human covenants and human agreements, how much more so does that go for spiritual covenants? How much more so does that go when God signs a covenant and he guarantees a covenant? So here he's making that, that argument. Now, men, I know that this will really uh, get you guys to look up at me for a minute um, before y'all go back to sleep, but let's say you find a boat that you want to buy. All right, see, I got your attention now. You find the boat and you pay for it. And in buying the boat, you sign the title, and you have it notarized. But five weeks later, the previous owner of the boat comes by your house and tells you that he decided he wants the boat back. He throws the money at you, hooks the trailer up to his truck, and pulls out of the driveway. Now, can that happen? Is that legal? Not at all. 
That cannot be broken. That is a human covenant. So now let's go to this spiritual covenant that Paul is referring to. Now, Paul goes back to the Old Testament quite often in the book of Galatians because he's dealing with people who are very traditional in the Judaistic faith, in the religious observances of ancient Judaism, which means the ancient law, which means they took a lot of stock and a lot of pride in that they were descendants of Abraham. So they're always pulling stuff out of the Old Testament and throwing it at these Galatians. In other words, saying, well, you should be circumcised. Well, you should not eat certain foods. Well, you should obey the rituals. You should obey the Sabbath. You should obey the festivals and all these other things that were prescribed in the Old Testament. So now Paul's going to flip it back on them. And he's going to say, as a matter of fact, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually confirms what I'm saying. The Old Testament actually does say that everyone is saved by faith. That no one is saved by keeping the law. He goes back to Abraham even. And we know what the Bible says about Abraham. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We're going to read that here in just a moment. So what he's saying is is that people have always been saved by faith. Abraham is in heaven today because he believed God. Moses is in heaven today because he believed God. Jacob is in heaven today because he believed God. No one is in heaven today because they obeyed the law. And the Bible is clear about that from Genesis to Revelation. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. Did you know that Abraham got to heaven through Jesus? It wasn't that he had the clarity and detail of the crucifixion of Christ. It wasn't that he had the detail of the event. But as he was looking forward in the time, he had this promise that God made him that the whole world will be blessed through his seed. And as he believed that promise, that seed is Jesus Christ, is what we're going to find out here in just a moment in this scripture. And as Abraham believed that promise in that seed that would come and bless the world, God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. It was the blood of Jesus that saved Abraham. It was the blood of Jesus that saved Moses. And it's the blood of Jesus that will save you today. And that is the only way to heaven. So in Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to share this chapter with you because it shows the the ratification and the confirming of the covenant That God made with Abraham, this covenant that Paul keeps referring to. So in Genesis 15, verse 1, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord. Hear this. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, and Hethites, Perizzites, Raphim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So here I want us to kind of look at this covenant that God made with Abram for just a moment. Because this covenant is something that would have been very, very common in the Middle East during those times. So essentially what they did was they would take these animals and they would cut them in half. And they would lay one half on this side and one half on that side. And they would, they would lay the animals in successive order like that and almost make like a trail that you could walk through. And the way that they would have a covenant is, is that the two making the agreement with each other, joined in hands, would walk through the animals. And they would walk out the other side. And that was symbolic of the fact that nothing could break their covenant. It was sealed by blood. It was sealed by death. And there was nothing that could change that. So here God is making that same symbolic gesture to Abraham in this covenant. Now, I want to be careful because it can get very uh, confusing sometimes. There are several covenants within Scripture. And basically what a covenant is, in terms of what I'm saying, is it is a promise that God has made to an individual or to a group of people. So a covenant is an agreement that God has made. Now, the, the covenant of promise, the promise made to Abraham, was known as the Abrahamic covenant. And it was the covenant that I just read that says that God would give Abraham children and that those children would bless the world, that Abraham would have a great nation, and that there would be one who comes from the seed of Abraham that will bless the whole world. Now, that was the covenant. Now, here Paul begins to, to, to compare the covenant of promise, which is the Abrahamic covenant, to the Mosaic covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant is the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. So as Moses goes to the peak of Mount Sinai, God gives him the tablets of the Old Testament and the law. And it was a, a commitment that God made that said, if you will follow these laws and you will follow these commands, then I will bless you and I will be your God. Now, some covenants are perpetual, which means they go on and on and on. And other covenants are short and they have a, a time span or a time restraint. But the only way that you know if a covenant ends or not is if it's specifically stated in Scripture that it's ending and it's being fulfilled by another covenant. So we understand that the covenant that God made with Abraham is still active. It's still happening because it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the covenant of the law, the covenant of the children of Israel where they were obeying the Ten Commandments and the letter of the law, ended when Jesus died and rose again. Now, if you remember what Jesus said, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, the new covenant, the covenant in the blood of Jesus, is a better covenant. It is a covenant that basically fixed and repaired what the old covenant could not do. So the old covenant has passed away. Okay, we're not living under the old covenant. We're living under the new covenant, which is a fulfillment of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. 
So here he makes this gesture. And I want to point out one specific thing about this agreement that God made. If you go back there in Genesis 15, you're going to find that there's only one person who passed between the animals. Normally it would have been both parties. It would have been both Abraham and God. But in this instance, only God passed through. It says in verse 17 in Genesis 15, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Here the Spirit of God is the one passing between. And what God is signifying there with Abraham is, is that the burden of this covenant rests solely upon my shoulders. And Abraham, listen, I'm making this to you. You are the beneficiary of this covenant. Not only you, but your seed and the entire world are the beneficiary of this covenant, but the covenant rests solely on my shoulders, and it rests on me to keep it and make sure that it happens as I've promised. So that is the significance of a covenant. Not only in human terms, but now we're looking at the significance of a covenant in spiritual terms. So that's the first thing that I wanted you to write down is the significance of a covenant. But the second thing that we're going to look at is the longevity of the covenant. The longevity of the covenant. Now, as we're talking about this promise that God made Abraham, and we're talking about the fact that God made this promise to him and this covenant and this agreement, the next question is, well, how long does it last? And as I said before, this is a perpetual covenant. This covenant does not end. We're even living, even still, under this covenant as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verses 16 and 17 of Galatians 3 really point that out to us if we'll look at those two verses together. It says in verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a type of agreement between two people. Now, it's not like a con, it's not like buying a car, okay? It's not like buying a house, okay? It's a much deeper, even a spiritual covenant. But when you make this covenant to a man or a woman, a spouse, and you're standing before God and before a group of people, and you're making these commitments, there actually is an expiration date on marriage. Did you know that? There's actually a longevity of that covenant, and it actually does expire at some point. Uh, you know, opposed to what the Mormons believe, who you're married to here is not who you're married to in heaven. The Bible teaches that they never, neither are married or are given in marriage in heaven. Okay, Marriage is not a thing that's going to be taking place because Jesus is our groom. We're married to Jesus, and that's why we're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we go to heaven. But here on earth, the marriage covenant does have a, a, an expiration date. And the Bible teaches that. Okay, So the Bible teaches that um, it says in Romans 7, verses 2 through 3, For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband when he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding her husband. So here we see that the covenant of marriage ends upon the death of one spouse or another. When we think about the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the promise of the one who would bless the world, we realize there is no end. And when we think about that, we can take heart and we can take assurance in the fact that we can stand on the promise of God, a promise that he will not ever break. A promise that he will not ever rescind. It's not based upon what you do in order to fulfill your end of the covenant. 
Remember what I said before. God is responsible. God has the burden of fulfilling that covenant, not us. So we can stand on that covenant knowing that it is guaranteed and sure. You know, one thing I've always talked about is the record of God. Now, you think about a team. You know, teams have a win-loss record. They're four and three. They're four and four, whatever it may be. Well, have you ever thought about the record that God has with telling the truth and with breaking his promises? You know, over the infinity past, God is completely undefeated when it comes to telling the truth. He always tells the truth. The Bible says that it is impossible for God to lie. And when you look at someone's track record like that, and I think a track record is pretty important, when you look at the track record of God, that ought to give you even more assurance that when he says something, it's going to happen. He cannot lie, and he's got that perfect record. Well, there's two really two things that the longevity of this covenant are standing on. As you heard what Paul said in verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. So here, this is an example of the Bible interpreting itself. So when we, when we look in Genesis, when we look in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, when we look in Genesis chapter 22, and the seed is promised, okay? The Hebrew word there used in Genesis for seed or for offspring, it's not really conclusive whether or not that's singular or plural. So it's not really conclusive whether that means seed or seeds, offspring one or offspring many. But here Paul is interpreting the scripture to say, that in this case, it indeed is singular, talking about one, talking about one person. And here he interprets who that person is, it's Jesus Christ. So when God is making this promise to Abraham, and he says, there will be, the, the world will be blessed through your seed. Paul is saying, God is literally saying, the world will be blessed through Jesus Christ, who will come from your loins. Now, if you go to Luke and you go to Matthew chapter 1, you're going to see a lineage and an ancestry of Jesus Christ. And guess who's in both of those ancestries? Abraham. So as God is talking to Abraham and he's making Abraham this promise, the fulfillment of that promise was when that little baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary. You can trace Mary's lineage back. You can trace Joseph, his earthly father's lineage back, even though he was not his biological father. And did you know both of them go back to Abraham, through King David. Remember, Jesus was also called the son of David. So God fulfills his promise, not, par not just partially, not just kind of, but fully, 100%. He says, listen, the promise that I made Abraham was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed the world by dying on an old wooden cross and by rising from the dead. Today, you can go to heaven because of the promise that God made Abraham. Because of the seed that's now blessing the world. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, today we can take stock in that. Today we can thank God for that. Today that's a reason to, to praise him and to worship him and glorify him. Thank you, God, for keeping your promises. Thank you, God, for not letting me down like so many other people have. Thank you, God, when my back's against the wall and I don't know what to do. You're the one there with me. You're the one who's always for me. You're the one who never lets me down. And we can take stock in that because of the promises. So number one, the longevity of the covenant is because of Christ. It rests in Jesus. It rests in the person of Jesus Christ. But secondly, 
It rests in God the Father. If you see there in verse 17, he says this. My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Who established the covenant? It was God. Who made the commitment? It was God. You know, one thing that people say, and, and they don't mean anything by it, it's just, but it is a mistake, is they say, I found God. Well, no one finds God. Did you know that? The Bible teaches in Romans 3, there are none who seek after God. God finds us. God comes our way. The, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit initiates salvation. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And then we're left to respond to that conviction. But it is God who comes. It is God who initiates. It is God who comes your way. The reason if you're saved today and you know Christ, the reason you're saved is because the Holy Spirit said your name one day. Because he came by your world one day. Because you were minding your own business, living your life. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was at home. Maybe it was at church. But God came your way and he turned your whole world upside down. And he said, hey, are you going to accept me or not? Are you going to turn from your sin and turn to me? Are you going to live for me? Are you going to take up your cross and follow me? Yes or no? He came your way. And today, these covenants that are being mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant, shows that God initiates his blessings. God initiates grace. God initiates salvation. And right here, he's talking about these 430 years. Now, if you look from the time that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai back to when God made the promise to Abraham, and that's the distinction Paul's making, is the, the time gap between the Abrahamic covenant, the promise, and the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law. If you look there, it's over 600 years. But what he was saying was the last time that God reiterated the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, was to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And if you look from the moment that God reiterated that promise to Jacob to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, that's where you get those 430 years. So as we look at those 430 years, Paul's basically looking at chronology. He's saying, listen, he's saying the, the, the covenant of promise was made 430 years before the law. He's saying, listen, just because a new covenant came on the scene 430 years later does not nullify an existing covenant. Nothing within the law of the covenant nullified the fact that God said, through the seed of Abraham, the world will be blessed. And he's talking to these folks here in this church, and he's saying, listen, what makes you think now that all of a sudden you can get saved by your good works? What makes you think all of a sudden now that if you live by the law, you can somehow be saved? He said, Abraham got saved by grace. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And today, anybody in here that's saved, the reason that you get saved is because you believed God. Because you believed that Jesus died and rose again for the sins, for your sins personally. And he's saying nothing's changed. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Jacob was saved by grace through faith. Moses was saved by grace through faith. No one who is in heaven today is in heaven because they kept the law. Did you know that? That is a, a scarlet thread throughout the scriptures. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. People are always saved by grace through faith. And Paul's saying, have you guys lost your mind? What makes you think all of a sudden it's changed? You, you claim to be children of Abraham? You claim to go about doing things the way Abraham did? 
Listen, the scriptures say that Abraham was saved because he believed God, not because he was a good person. He's saying the promise still stands. And when God makes a promise, he keeps the promise. Now, what I want you to see here is today that we are living in an extension of that Abrahamic covenant called the New Covenant. And what the New Covenant is, is it's the covenant that God has made with us, with the blood of Jesus. The fact that the Bible teaches us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, when Jesus hung on the cross, okay, after he was beaten, after he was ridiculed, after he was humiliated... He gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. And what that means is Jesus is saying, I have completed the covenant. I have completed my obligation to this covenant. I have put forth the possibility for all people to be saved. It is now for them to accept or to reject. And basically, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant now has instituted the new covenant whereby we can live in this time of grace and in this time of freedom because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But one thing that has not changed is how people get to heaven. It has never changed. Now, Abraham did not know the specifics of the crucifixion. Abraham did not know the specifics of Jesus of Nazareth. Abraham did not know exactly where uh, he would be born. He didn't have those details. He had uh, just a kind of a dark, cloudy image of what it would look like. But what he did know is, is that God said there would be one who would bless the world. And Abraham said, God, you said it, I believe it. God said, you're righteous because you believe it. Now today, you may sit out there and you may say, I've never accepted Jesus. I don't know if heaven would be my home when I die. One question I always like to ask, if you were to die today, God forbid, do you know for sure that heaven would be your home? Hey, today, all you've got to do is say yes to Jesus. Say, Lord, based upon your death, burial, and resurrection, I trust you for my eternity. The Bible says, based upon that, you're saved. You then enter into that new covenant, that extension of the Abrahamic covenant, that extension of the promise. The extension of the promise, by the way, that the law never invalidated. The law did not cancel out the promise. Today, we can still hold to the promise because Jesus, indeed, is who he said he was. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, and he brought about the new covenant in his very own blood. Think about it like this as we go into this last point. This last point is the binding power of the covenant, if you're making notes. The binding power of the covenant. So we've looked at the fact that covenants are significant. We've looked at the longevity of the covenant which we said does not expire. And now we're looking at that binding power. In other words, what is the power of the covenant? What makes the covenant hold together? What makes it so reliable? Well, here Paul begins to use terminology such as inheritance. Verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Now I want to give you two scenarios so you can kind of see what he's talking about here. Number one, let's say that your parents pass away. Well, in most cases, the inheritance that you receive is based upon the fact that you're simply one of their heirs. That, that's, that's what causes you to receive inheritance. For example, let's say that someone has four children, and when they pass away, the will is read, and the will states that each of the four children each receive an equal portion of the estate. That would be an inheritance based upon a promise. That would be an inheritance based upon your position in the family, 
the fact that you were born to the family, you get this amount of money or amount of goods. But now let's look at this a different way. A different scenario would be the same instance, four children, but one of the four children receives 70% of the estate, while the other three each only receive 10%. And when the will is read, the will makes clear that the one who received the 70% did so because they pleased their parents the most. They didn't get into as much trouble growing up, they got better grades in school, and they had a job that their parents were proud of. That would be an inheritance based upon law. In other words, the amount that I inherit from my parents is based upon what good I was able to achieve in life. The other side was saying, listen, it doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done, you're an heir. You're a child. And you get an equal portion for that reason. The definition of inheritance is this. The money, property, or assets that someone receives from a person who has died. In other words, the only thing you have to do to get an inheritance is to receive it. It's to be available to say, yes, I will receive that inheritance. Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 most beautifully explain this. And this is that binding power of the covenant that I'm talking about. It says in verse 14, For, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And listen to this. If children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. So when we think about that, we understand that the vast wealth and riches of the king of glory is up for inheritance. God is going to pass that to someone. God is going to give that to someone. And in the Christian world, in the Christian mindset, you have to understand that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are adopted into the family of God. You were once fatherless. You were once without hope. You were once in darkness. And God said, listen... Based upon the sacrifice of my son and him paying for your sins, I am going to adopt you as my child. The moment you say yes to Jesus, God becomes your father and you become his child. And the Bible says that since you are the child of God, you now get an inheritance. And you get the same inheritance that Jesus gets. Did you hear what the Bible says? It says we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is going to take the throne, that Jesus is over all judgment, that Jesus is over glory. And we're going to be able to be co-heirs with him for all eternity. But here's what's so important. In the same way that the burden of the Abrahamic covenant was carried by God, today the new covenant, the burden for that is also carried by God. You may say, Ben, yeah, I've been saved, but you know I've lived a bad life, and I just don't think God's going to accept me into heaven anymore. Did you hear what I said? That God carries the burden for the new covenant. And if you've truly been saved, I don't even care if you don't want to be saved. God doesn't let you go. The Bible says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. And if you say you don't want to be saved anymore, you either never really got it, or God's about to give you a whooping that you'll never forget. But he does not let his children go. Once you are adopted into the family of God, you are then a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You can stand on that promise because God does not break his promises. Now that goes to this other side of things. 
is that we live in a world of people who are not in the new covenant, who have never accepted Jesus as their Savior, who have never become children of God, who are not co-heirs with Christ, who one day, when, when the new heaven and the new earth descend upon this planet and we're able to go into the glories of God with him forever and ever, there's many people who are going to go into a place called hell because they never were a part of the family of God. But guess what? There's hope. There's hope right now for these people. And that hope lies in the gospel. And the Bible teaches us that as believers, hey, the reason you're still here today is not uh, to, to just enjoy life. That's part of it. But the reason you're still breathing today is because God's not done with you. God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. God gets to decide when you go home. He's got you here for a reason. So today I want to challenge you. Here in a moment when we worship, we go into a time of reflection. I want to challenge you to pray for lost people. I want to challenge you uh, to ask God, God, put someone on my mind that I can go and minister to, that I can invite to church, that I can share the gospel with. Because listen, we want the family to be as big as possible. We want to take as many people with us to heaven as possible. And I'm telling you, the only way they're going to get there is the same way that Abraham got there, the same way that Isaac, the same way that Jacob, the same way that Moses, and the same way that we get there. And that's by believing and trusting in God and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.